0: To our passage now. So right now, in the Hill household, in the Hill household, we have a slight airing of grievances that is going on in our Hill household. And it has to do with the latest iPhone update. Okay? I don't know if you've experienced this, but iPhone has a new update. And it comes for everybody at different times. And part of you is like, look, if it ain't broke, like, don't give me an update. And so part of our issue that's going on in our family is simply this. Um, Well, for one thing, like when you call someone, instead of a black screen with their name, if they have a photo uploaded, their photo, their face is like right in your face now. It comes, and this is new, with no warning that this was happening. Also, also, um, when you're trying to spell someone's name, like just for example, like if you're trying to spell someone's name, let's just say their name is Kelly and it auto-corrects to jelly every time. You have to wonder, and then when you write the word the, you misspell the word the, and it keeps it as T-E-H. Like, you gotta wonder what's going on. Like, is AI missing the boat? Like, ha- m- spell my wife's name correctly, but change the to get it right, right? So there's this little bit of ongoing angst in our family about what autocorrect is doing and what's going on. And in some ways, the book of Hebrews, here's the transition, everybody, you're like, where the heck is he going with this? In some ways, the book of Hebrews is this this idea and this warning that, hey, God has a new terms of use agreement. God has a new system update. That there is a new software, there's a new operating system that Jesus has inaugurated. The old one is going away, it's growing old. It will not work that you need the new update in order for things to work. And chapter 8 is where the author of Hebrews is going to lean on this idea that God, through the work of Jesus, has inaugurated a new covenant, a new agreement, a new term of use agreement, a new operating system is in use. And the way it has been will no longer be going forward. There's some... This is not, and this is, of course, not some routine update filled with bugs and fixes. This is because God has sent the ultimate update, His Son incarnate, to be a mediator of His relationship with His people. The person of the Son has come to make all things new, and He's greater than any mediator from the past. If you have your Bibles, let's open up to Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 1. Hebrews chapter 8. And verse 1, I think for all the talk about Melchizedek and the cloudy stuff from last week, the author has decided to make something clear. Look at 8.1. He says, now the main point in what we are saying is this, and this is awesome. Whenever there's someone who comes right out and says, hey, the main point is this, it's like, okay, now we get to pay attention. So it says the main point in what we are saying is this, and this is it, that we have such a high priest. And Hebrews is punctuating this point. And what we're going to note in our notes, we're on this idea that there's an excellent ministry, a more excellent ministry. And where the author of Hebrews is going is that, yeah, the main point is that we have this ultimate mediator between God and humanity. He has raised, he sent him down from the heavenly realms, and he's also raised him up from among humanity to be this mediator connecting the heavens where God is at and the earth where humans live. How can these things meet? And they meet in the person of Jesus. And Jesus is the ultimate mediator that connects God in the heavenly realms with humans in the earthly realms. And he has a ministry, an excellent ministry. Look at 8.6. 8.6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry— that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises and this more excellent ministry that Jesus has come to inaugurate has called for an update a new terms of use agreement and this time as opposed to like for us when we're like yeah you know, Facebook is updating or Instagram is updating or my phone is updating. And you're like, how is this going to benefit me? Like, maybe it benefits the updater better than it it benefits the user. But this new agreement that God has given is like, hey, I need the user to benefit from this. I need my people to benefit from this. This is not an upgrade just for me, although this is going to make my relationship with them more enduring and more intimate but I need them to have some confidence. And so I am going to make this this user agreement update, a new operating system, and it's going to be able to get into them and transform their hearts. Not just give them an external rule code. It's going to get into them and it's going to make transformation a reality for people. Now this can take place because, in part because Jesus is a better high priest. Now as we've been going through the book of Hebrews, we've been noting again that Jesus is a mediator, that he's the better mediator. God in the past has sent down mediators from heaven like angels. Angels have delivered the Torah. They've come down from heaven. But God has also raised up intermediaries and and mediators from the earth. He's raised up Moses. But Jesus is greater than Moses. He's raised up Aaron as a priest, but Jesus is greater than Aaron. He's raised up Joshua, who's supposed to lead the people into their rest, but Jesus is greater than Joshua. He's raised up Aaron as a high priest, but Jesus is greater than Aaron. So all these things that Jesus is the ultimate high, the ultimate mediator, and he has received, uh, he's become a high priest. In chapter 4, one of the reasons why he's become a great high priest is as a full human, and you might wonder, like, if Jesus come down from the heavens, the heavenly realms, Jesus is fully God, that he must have an advantage, that he, we can't, he can't relate to us as a human being, that I can't become like him. He's, he's too much, but He's too much for me to emulate. But the thing is, Jesus, in chapter 4, the author of Hebrews, is saying, look, Jesus is subject to the same weaknesses as you are. This is one of the things that makes him a really effective high priest. He can sympathize. With your weaknesses. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. So there's some ways that he's like the former high priest, but there's also ways that he's not. So he is fully human. He's subject to the same weaknesses. He's subject to the same testings and temptations that we are subject to. But he's greater than high priest because he's not succumbed to those testings or those temptations. And in the last chapter, we saw in a kind of roundabout way, I kind of got wrapped around the axle a little bit about Melchizedek, that he's not like a high priest according to Torah, where Aaron and the Levites, they were the ones who were supposed to operate in the tabernacle, but that this guy Melchizedek, who is outside of Torah, who who Abraham paid tithes to, he's a high priest, and Jesus is going to be a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, outside of the law, but in a more enduring way with the power of, of an indestructible life. Jesus will be able to walk into the Holy of Holies, not be afraid for his life, not have to tie a rope around him in case you fall over dead so we can yank you out. Jesus can go in with confidence, and Jesus can do the work that high priests were meant to do in the very temple of God. And so, as we are here in chapter 8, we continue with this explanation of Jesus as the high priest, and this is what he says, 8.1... Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. One thing we noted last week, and that Melchizedek reminded us of, is that Jesus is a high priest, but he's not simply a high priest. He is a high priest who has also been enthroned as a king. And this would have been unprecedented in the history of Israel, you, you had the division of offices. You have priests, prophets, and kings. Sometimes you had overlap, like the guy Samuel, he was, a, he was a priest prophet. And then sometimes with David, David was a king prophet. But you never had a priest king. You could never have a priest king. But in this case, Jesus is both high priest and he is king enthroned when it says he is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven when you see seated you need to hear or when you hear seated you need to think enthroned this comes from psalm 110 psalm 110 is where the melchizedek stuff comes from but it's also an enthronement psalm it's a psalm that would have been recited and sung when the king was being enthroned and so this idea that jesus has gone into the heavenly realms and he's sat down, which is going to be an important thing um, th- because he's, in, he's enthroned. He's gonna, the author is going to really play on that and expand on that as we get to chapter 10. So Jesus is a high priest and a king. So this is one way that his high priesthood is better than the Torah observant, the, the Levitical high priest. You never have a Levitical high priest and king, but Jesus is a high priest king. Look at 8.2. Here's another way that Jesus's priesthood is superior to the priests under Torah. Eight two, it says a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, and not man. Now here's one of the things that we see. The next reason why the ministry of Jesus um, as a high priest is better is that. He's not operating in the earthly sanctuary that has been set up by Moses and by Torah. He's not operating there. He's actually operating, If we, again, if we have the heavenly realms up here, and we have the earthly realms below, what we see is that in the earthly realms there have been provisions made by God to Moses to set up a tent, a tabernacle, a place of worship on the earth. And he goes on to say in 8.5 they serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. And here's the idea. Well, we'll keep reading. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. All right, so hang with me here. So Jesus is in the heavenly tabernacle, but Moses, here's, the, here's what the, uh, the traditions were about Moses on Mount Sinai with God. That when Moses went to Mount, onto Mount Sinai with God to receive the covenant and to receive all the regulations of the Torah, and you can find this in the book of Exodus, that when he went there, he went to the top of Mount Sinai, and the tradition is this, that when he went to the top of Mount Sinai, he met with God. Remember the, the world, the way this, this was thought was that the world was like this, the, the heavenly realms and the earthly realms, and you had places where the heavens and the earth met. And that God would interact with humans at this place where the heavens and the earth met. And so, Mount Sinai, the idea was that Mount Sinai, at the top of Mount Sinai, was a place where the heavens and the earth met. So, Moses goes up and God comes down to this meeting place. Now, whatever happens in that place, we have this little overlap, this little period of overlap between the heavens and the earth. This was the understanding. And that while Moses is there, he looks somehow, I don't know exactly how it works, but he looks through this window or through into the heavenly realms, and he sees God in God's holy of holies, in his sanctuary, in his throne room. And as he looks and he sees them, he sees that God has, God has, what the author of Hebrews says is that God has pitched a tent. That he's set up a tabernacle in heaven, and he has this throne room in this tent. And so what he tells Moses to do is he says, hey, take a good look, Moses, measure it all out, and now go back down and reproduce what you have seen in the heavens. So make, reproduce this tabernacle, this throne room, this this temple essentially, go reproduce it down on earth. So what happens is, in, uh, in, uh, when, uh, on Mount Sinai, in chapter 19, he's told. about, so then the rest of the book of Exodus is about, okay, these are all the regulations, these are the measurements, these are the people that you need to get to do all the work. The, this is, so he gets all that together, and he goes down, and he's going to tell the people about this. He so said, make a copy of it, make an exact copy of it. And that's what Exodus 25 through 31 is about and the idea is that this copy of the heavenly sanctuary this copy the tabernacle this is where the high priest according to torah would operate and bring people to god they they would go into the exact replica of the heavenly tabernacle but according to the author of hebrews jesus because he's not a he's not a high priest according to torah he would have to be a Levite. But because he is a high priest, according to Melchizedek, he doesn't go into the earthly tabernacle. He actually goes into the very tabernacle that God himself has set up. It's so interesting because in Hebrews it says he's gone into a temple, he's gone into a tabernacle, he's gone into a tent that the Lord has pitched. God has pitched a tent. God likes to camp. He has pitched a tent, not on earth, and it's not been a tent that has been pitched by human hands. I've set up some tents before, and I've been, I don't know if I'm going to sleep in this tent. Like, I don't know if it's going to make it, right? But he has pitched it, God himself has pitched a tent. And, God, and Jesus has gone into that tent. one. Now the main point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Jesus, a very real human high priest, sympathetic, able to offer real human help, with his power of an indestructible life, doesn't just go into the Holy of Holies on earth, where priests were afraid to go. He goes into the very Holy of Holies, where God actually is. not into an earthly tabernacle or tent, but into the sanctuary in the heavens, into the very presence of God. And this is going to inaugurate a system update, a new terms of use agreement, a new operating system, what Hebrews calls and Jeremiah calls and the people of Israel call a new covenant. A new covenant is being inaugurated because a human has been able to go into the very presence of God. This has not been able to happen since Adam. A human has not been able to go into the very presence of God, not since Adam. This is one of the reasons why, outside of Hebrews, Jesus is called the second Adam. He is a real human being, and he goes into the presence of God, and God says, once this happens, and he offers himself, he offers himself, look, redeemed humanity, the power of an indestructible life, and God says, all right. It's time for an upgrade. It's time for a new user agreement where we get everything right. Where we have redemption. We have our own version of autocorrect that is meaningful and real. We're going to redeem these people. We're going to love them. And we're going to make it so that this can be an enduring covenant that no matter how bad they get, we can make sure that they know that we love them. As a new covenant, 8-6, but but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Look at verse 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for the second. And of course, what the author here is doing is playing on the Old Testament knowledge, what they would have called the, the Bible knowledge, the Hebrew Bible knowledge, of his people, of his audience, that the first covenant was established between God and his people when Moses went up to Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, 20, 24, 31, 34, and it culminates when Moses is given the stone tablets, where God writes the agreement onto these stone tablets, where God had written the commandments on these stone tablets. Now the problem is, anybody know what the problem is? As soon as Moses gets the the Ten Commandments. Not like Mel Brooks. Like, I give you these 15, and then he drops one. The Ten Commandments. All right. Not good. Okay, okay. So the idea is the, the Ten Commandments, Charlton Heston, whatever you want to imagine, coming down. But when he comes down, when Moses comes down, what's happening? The people have already broken the covenant and the problem the problem is there's something about this covenant it's an external covenant it cannot ensure obedience it can threaten obedience it can thre- it can it can offer consequences for disobedience but it cannot produce a transformed heart it doesn't mean it was it was bad it's just it's, it's the same thing moses wasn't bad the high priests weren't bad it's simply that jesus is greater we have a new covenant, a greater covenant. The covenant then almost immediately fails. Moses comes down the mountain. The people are worshiping the golden calf. And in Exodus 32, and that's in Exodus 32. and Exodus 34, the covenant, only two chapters after the covenant has been inaugurated does it have to be renewed because it's been broken. And God begins, if you read the Old, the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, if you read it, it's, it's this cycle where God begins the process of the renewal of the covenant. The people obey for a time and then fall away. And then there's consequences. And then God does a work of redemption to renew the covenant. And the people obey. And then after a time, they fall away. And then there's consequences. And then God is gracious and renews the covenant. And this happens over and over and over again again in the Old Testament because God is merciful and compassionate and gracious that he would renew the covenant. That there's never a time when God's like, hey, I'm done, I'm done. He will renew the covenant. Ultimately, the the falling away is so significant that God uproots them from the land of their promise that the consequence is uprooting out of the promises. And this is when a man named Jeremiah wrote the words that the book of Hebrews is going to quote in Jeremiah 31, which begins in Hebrews 8.8. 8. He says he finds fault with the previous covenant when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. First of all, just imagine, you've got to imagine this. Uprooted out of the land. Cycle after cycle after cycle after cycle of renewal and disobedience and God being gracious, but now this ultimate being uprooted out of the land, utter desolation. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. And so this new update, this new covenant is like and not like the old. A little bit of both. There's some continuity to the upgrade, but there's some discontinuity to the upgrade. The former covenant is kind of like the new, but the new is greater. And here's how it happens. Here's how they're alike. God is going to take his people by the hand to lead them and to guide them. I mean, just, just, first of all, just think about that, that God would actually reach out to your hand and grab your hand to lead you and to guide you. I love in the book of Deuteronomy, after they come out of the years of wandering, and Moses says, look, the Lord has carried you like a father carries his child. Dad's out there. You know what it's like when the meltdowns are happening and you're like, yeah, we're not going to walk anymore. It's time to pick up and carry. Right? Or if you have two. Or sometimes three. Or you got the stroll. Like it's all, kids all over everything. Right? The Lord has carried you like a father carries his child. That was the way it was in the old covenant. That will not change. That will not change. The Lord will take you by the hand. So there's some ways in which the previous covenant and this new covenant are alike. God is gracious, and that is not going to change everybody. God was gracious then, he's gracious now. The issue was that the covenant established some things, but it could not maintain some things. Namely, it could not ensure the continuity. It could not ensure faithfulness. Though God would be faithful, God was gracious, God was faithful, God was unchanging, God would be faithful. God would renew the covenant. But he could not ensure that the people would remain faithful. The covenant could not do that. In short, it could give them external rules and external regulations, but it could not transform the heart. And again, if you've been, if you've been a teacher... If you've been a parent, if you've been an employer or a boss, like, you know you can set up rules. You can set up really good, helpful rules. And you can even have people obey those rules, but you might get people who just don't want to obey the rules. And either they will break the rules or or they will keep them begrudgingly. In other words, your rule, putting up your rule is not going to change someone's heart. Sometimes around here, um, somebody does something and people will be like, we need to put a sign on that. I'm like, we're not going to put a sign on that. The reason is, is because, look, the goal is not to just have a bunch of signs around telling people what to do. Look, let's just have a conversation. Let's talk. Like, the goal is to win a heart. Not just put up a rule. Like, we forget that the goal is not just to have people obey rules. Our goal is to win a heart. It's not just to make our point. We we can make our points. But winning a heart over takes time. And what God says is, look, what I want is not just an external bunch of rules and code of conduct. What I want is some access into their hearts. It could give rules and regulations, but it could not transform The human heart. And by implication then, God is setting out to make a covenant that will enable his people to remain in it. The first step was to offer a high priest who could remain forever. So Jesus is a high priest who could remain forever. But this is what he says, 8.10, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people they shall not teach one each one his neighbor each one his brother saying know the lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest and I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more here's another way that the old is like the new and the new is like the old when it says, I will be their God and they will be my people. That is standard covenant talk. That is not changing. I will be their God and they will be my people. God is taking you by the hand. He's saying you are are my people. I am your God. But it goes on to say, I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. And of course, we've talked a little bit about this, but Torah, the over 600 commandments in the first five books of the Old Testament, these are all external codes of conduct. These are external rules. And the author of Hebrews is going to say, like, and and Jeremiah, that these external rules... um, they're not going to get it done. What we need is to get in, and I think that this is probably an allusion to, I think the Apostle Paul will make this case, that this is an allusion to the work of the Holy Spirit, that God is going to put the Holy Spirit, though in the old, under the Old Covenant there was access to the Holy Spirit, usually it was like, you know, if you were a king, you might expect having the Spirit of God upon you, like David or something like that. Or you, if you were a high priest, you might expect the Spirit of God coming upon you, Or if you were a prophet, you might expect that the Spirit of God would come upon you. Jesus, on the last night of his life, he talks about, hey, you know the Holy Spirit. He has been with you, but he will be in you. That there's going to be something that happens that enables God not just to come upon people, but he will come into people on the day of pentecost when the, uh, when peter is preaching to the crowd he quotes joel chapter 2 which talks about it's not just it's not just kings that are going to get this it's going to be old men and young men it's going to be it's going to be women it's going to be men and women it's going to be masters and servants it's going to be the spirit is not going to just come on Those who are older, those who are leaders, those who are male, it's going to come on, it's going to come across the board. It's not going to matter if you're a master or a slave. You have access to the Spirit of God. The New Covenant is saying there is an access to God that is going to be across the board. It's going to be an internal work of the Holy Spirit. The laws are going to be in your minds and not just on paper, external to you. There's going to be something of what the Spirit is doing that is going to regulate our hearts and our minds from within, not simply from without. And of course, that, that needs a much more explanation, but we're just we're here for now. It also says, I'm going to write on their hearts and this is an allusion to what happens under the first covenant. That God, it says, in the book of Exodus, it says that God takes stone tablets and he writes with his finger onto the stone tablets. The hard stone tablets. But there's something that goes on when we looked at Psalm 95 in the Exodus generation, what had happened to their hearts? Their hearts had hardened. And it's not just that God is going to, hey, there's stone there's external stone I'm going to write on these stone tablets and hey you've got a hard heart I'm going to write on your hard heart. no the image is that you have a soft heart and I'm just going to impress onto your soft heart what I want from you. I'm not going to chisel it out I'm not going to burn it in. Ezekiel says you've been given you've been a, you've had a heart transplant, the heart of stone has been taken out a heart of flesh has been put in because it's soft and ready to listen to what god has to say and god says in this covenant i'm i'm not just going to do external work on you outside i'm going to do internal work on you i'm going to put it on your minds i'm going to write it on your heart i'm going to impress it onto you i'm not going to chisel it onto you i'm just going to impress it onto you You think also about the role of the law, especially when Jesus is asked, hey, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, hey, look, I'm not going to give you all 633. I'm just going to give you the top two. Actually, I'll give you the top one and one that comes right after it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then let's go to Leviticus 19. Love your neighbor as yourself. On this, all of the law and the prophets hang. And it's not that there's, hey, we need... The rest of it is just kind of working it all out. But those two things, if you get those two things written on your heart with the Holy Spirit indwelling, you can work it out. God will be with you. You work that out. It's not about all these external codes and all these external rules and let's make up some more rules and let's make up some more rules and there's a new thing in the world, so we've got to make up a rule about that. It's about this idea that the Holy Spirit is going to dwell within us God is going to work on our hearts. Love God. Love others. Love orange. Okay. Love God. I, I mean, Jesus is like, wherever you are, that's the next one. Love God. Love others. And wherever you live, that's your job. Here's the Holy Spirit. You know I love you. I will be there. If you have questions, you can ask me. Let's do this. That's the new covenant. Don't get caught up on, the, on all the rules. There's going to be lots of rules. And look, you might have different ideas about how these things happen. Should I watch the Super Bowl? Should I not watch the Super Bowl? Should I root for the 49ers? Yes, according to Daryl, right? Like, how are we going to do this? Should I vote Democrat? Should I re- vote Republican? Now, maybe there's different ideas about that. But at the same time, there's lots of extra stuff. Love God, love others, Holy Spirit in your hearts, law put on your hearts, talk about it. But if you're going to talk about it, love one another. If you're going to work it out, you've got to love the Lord your God and you've got to love each other. That's the new covenant. And let's go do this. Like that, that's this is the idea of what the new covenant is about. I think the interesting thing is that God is going to put a heart of willing obedience into his people, this soft heart. But he's also going to do it, it says that they shall know me. They shall not all teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. And I think this idea back to Joel chapter 2, they shall all know me, it's not just that the kings will know me or the priests will know me who offer access to me, they'll all know me. I think it's interesting, and under the first covenant, when God says, hey, I'm gonna make this covenant with you, but what I really want is I want to inaugurate a kingdom of priests. I just want, I want everybody to be a mediator to me. I want, I want access, I want everyone to have an intimacy with me that they can share with their brother or sister. I want a kingdom of priests. And here he says, look, we're gonna get to the day where I am so in my people, you're not going to have to teach each other. Now, whether or not that day has come or not, and there's different commentaries that are going to say, hey, the new covenant is already inaugurated and we're in this right now. Or there's also this idea that this is one day going to happen and that we're not already there yet. I th- there, there's different ideas and different uh, arguments you can make for either one, for both of those. But I think the idea is ultimately that there's going to be this leveling. You're not going to need Pastor Craig to get up and explain who Melchizedek is. Like there's going to be a day where you're going to be like face-to-face and you don't need the Apostle Paul or you don't need me or you don't need anyone else. You don't need someone else to teach you because you will see it clearly face-to-face. Perhaps some of that starts now maybe, but ultimately when we are face-to-face with Jesus, it's not like somebody's like, hey, let me explain what's happening here. You don't, you're not going to need a podcast to say, hey, now you're in the presence of God, let me explain what's happening. Like you're just going to be able to be there and say, yes. A day is coming, declares the Lord. I want this to happen, declares the Lord. I will make this happen, declares the Lord. And ultimately, how can all this happen? He says, for this user update, God is going to have to make some sacrifices. Literally. His son is going to have to deal with sins and iniquities trespasses. He says, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Now chapter 9 in the book of Hebrews is going to explain the work of atonement that Jesus accomplishes. And this line that God will remember our sins no more. How is he able to not remember our sins anymore? The work of Jesus in atonement. His suffering and death and resurrection does something to our sins that removes them from us and gives us his righteousness so that when God sees us, he sees the righteousness of his sons, of his sons and daughters. Sorry, he sees the righteousness of his son. Jesus. let me get this one right. When God looks at you, he does not see your righteousness. He sees the righteousness of his son imputed onto you. When he looks at Jesus on the cross, he sees your sins on Jesus. It's what they call double imputation. Jesus is treated as something he is not, a sinner, so that we can be treated as something we are not, righteous. And the work in the, in the book of Hebrews, it will talk through that in chapter 9, but he gives us the first step in that a new covenant. Where he puts a willing obedience into our hearts. He gives us intimate fellowship. They shall all know me, and the removal of sin. And I think just as we, as we come to this, as we land the plane here, I think one just takeaway question that we just need to kind of wrestle with is that, um, what covenant are you living under right now? Like as much as as much as I look, I will affirm, Jesus died for my sins. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And yet, I might still, when I sin, when I fall, when I am forgetful of God, I might experience guilt and shame and wallow in that and say, "Ah, oh, how horrible am I, and, or penance or something like that, that I might be living under this previous covenant without even really knowing it. It's kind of part of our human nature. That we feel like what we really need to do is barter with God. God can only be good to me if I am good back to Him. Whereas God is like, hey, it's my decision whether I'm good to you or not. Regardless of what, what is happening down there. I get to make that choice. God says I get to make that choice. It's easy, sometimes it's easier to just have your own personal list of rules and follow them. And that means you get to feel good about yourself. And if you don't, you don't get to feel good about yourself. The place where your sins are remembered and you feel the shame for them. Or where other people sin and you shame them for that. That that worked. I mean, that's the world we live in, everybody. But under the new covenant... There's an internal presence of God through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit will guide you. There's a father who says, I'm your father. You are my son. You are my daughter. I've adopted you. The intimate fellowship. Just remember, like, whenever you come to again, I'll say this, I will say this over and over and over again. When you come to God, God rejoices that you come to Him, no matter how forgetful you have been of Him all day long. You always rejoice when you come. That's the new covenant. He's, it's the system upgrade. It's what he says, I want, that, I want that experience for them every day, every day, every day, every moment of every day to know that I rejoice that they come to me and that there is not a penalty they must pay before I pay attention to them. And Jesus who says, because of my work, your sins are remembered no more when you come. When you come, you receive mercy. I will be merciful to them, and I will forget their sins. Which covenant are you under? Which covenant are you using to relate to God? And I hope, I don't want to be heavy-handed. It's not like, I don't want to shame you for being shamed, right? Like It's like double shame, boom, boom, boom. Like, you suck and you suck, okay? That's not what I'm trying to say. That what, I, what I want, <laughs> how many times, the over-under on how many times I say you suck. Um, what I do want to just encourage you with, God has made a different way, and if you're feeling the weight of your sin, or even the weight of what other people have done to you over your life, I just want to say, God has made a way. He's been very intentional about this. He sent his son incarnate, who has lived a life, become human, experience all the weakness and temptations that we have experienced. That he has suffered on our behalf. He's died on our behalf. He has resurrected again into a redeemed humanity and gone into the very throne room of God to say, here I am, I have redeemed humanity. And God's like, let's do this now. Yes. Boom, high five. I mean, can you imagine the celebration that they had? Yes. Our plan is coming together. Let's put our spirit in their hearts. Let's give them a soft heart. Let's take them by the hand. Let's remind them how much we love them.